Welcome to The Halfling. I'm your host, Jaron Pack, and you're listening to Episode 5, Isildur Saves the Day. Alright, I know we left off last time with the promise to dive right into Isildur's story, but there's one more part of the background that we have to clear up before we really get things going. Don't worry though, I'm not about to describe any more terraforming or convoluted royal lineage. I need to catch us up on a bit of a feistier subject. War. By the time Isildur is born, the 3,000-year-old island nation of Numenor has spent quite a bit of time flexing its muscle by fighting the new Dark Lord Sauron on the mainland of Middle-earth. They've also set up lots of colonies on the shores of the continent, where they slowly shift over time from benevolent friends of the local tribesmen to resource-hungry rulers and lords. This is the situation when, about 50 years after Isildur is born, Sauron finally goes too far. In the Silmarillion, it says that at this point reports come back from the mainland saying that Sauron, quote, was pressing down upon the cities by the coasts, and he had taken now the title of King of Men and declared his purpose to drive the Numenorians into the sea and destroy even Numenor, if that might be. End quote. I always picture the king, a stuck-up dude called Ar Farazon, getting this news and just being like, say what now? Oh, no, he didn't. All right, guys, let's get him. I mean, remember, this guy is the leader of the strongest kingdom of men in the world at this point, so he gathers up his troops and sails to Middle-earth to put Sauron in his place. This may sound nuts for anyone used to Lord of the Rings-sized armies. After all, pretty much every battle in that story involves massively outnumbered groups of good guys facing off against hordes of orcs and the like. But this is different. Remember, the Numenorians have had a really long run of prosperity, like 3,000 uninterrupted years long. They live lengthy lives, have robust resources, and can recruit from a huge population. When they disembark from their ships, Sauron's servants are dumbfounded. In fact, they up and hightail it out of there before the fighting can even start. Finding himself abandoned by his servants, the Dark Lord surrenders and is taken back to Numenor as a prisoner. Now, before you start doing cartwheels at the thought of Sauron being captured, let's remember. We're talking about the Dark Lord here. This guy knows what he's doing. He also doesn't look like the big, black-armored dude that we're used to seeing at this point. He has a normal body. In fact, a pretty handsome one by all accounts. This good-looking version of Sauron starts weaseling his way into the attention of the prideful king of Numenor, and it doesn't take long before he works his way out of captivity and all the way into the position of the king's top counselor. Yeah, he's that good. Acknowledging that muscle isn't an option at the moment, Sauron doesn't just close up shop and head for the hills. He does an end around the entire issue by working into the good graces of his very captors. And then he uses his new political power to corrupt the entire nation through various public policies. He institutes the worship of his original master, the Dark Lord Morgoth, complete with human sacrifices. He also convinces Ar-Farazon that the Valar are against him, and eventually he gets the king to declare war on the very beings who gifted them their island in the first place. This all spells disaster for the Numenorians, a disaster that will set up the rest of Middle-earth's history quite nicely. But before we get to that, there's one more little episode that takes place during this time, and it happens to do double duty by being the place where Isildur officially enters the story. See, when the Numenorians first arrived on their island, elves came out of the Blessed Realm away in the west and gave them a gift. Now this gift was a seedling of a famous tree in their homeland. This seedling is planted and becomes a beautiful white tree, 
In fact, it's literally called the White Tree, and it remains a symbol of the specially blessed Numenorians. As a quick side note, it's also a direct ancestor of the White Tree seen in the court of Minas Tirith during the Return of the King, so yeah, it's a pretty big deal. Anyway, Sauron hates this tree. Like, he loathes it. He knows what it stands for, and he wants to get rid of it. He counsels Arpharazon to destroy it, but at first the king is hesitant about taking such drastic action. After all, he's aware of the symbolic nature of the arboreal wonder. Eventually, though, Sauron convinces the corrupted ruler to let him cut it down. Before he can do so, though, something happens. And yes, it has to do with Isildur. Still a relatively young man, Isildur hears about the impending doom of the tree from his grandfather. And I love this part because it sets the tone for how impressive the young lordling is. Rather than blustering about how upsetting the news is, Isildur listens, thinks, and takes action. In the Silmarillion, it literally just says that, quote, Isildur said no word, but went out by night and did a deed for which he was afterward renowned. End quote. The upstart youngster puts on a disguise and heads to the Numenorean capital where the tree is growing. He makes his way right into the royal courts without anyone seeing him, and he eventually approaches the tree itself, which is officially off-limits by order of Sauron at this point. The Dark Lord is still trying to get permission to destroy the tree, and he doesn't want to let anyone get anywhere near it until he gets the king to sign off on the deal. Now, this all happens right before the winter, and the tree is dark but laden with fruit. When Isildur arrives on the scene, he steals one of these fruits and starts to head home. But just then the guards wake up and, realizing what's going on, they attack the mysterious stranger. Isildur shows off some of his metal by fighting off the entire crew before escaping with the fruit intact. While this is impressive though, he does get a lot of wounds in the process. Now he reaches his family in safety and they hide the seed. So it's a job well done for the son of Elendil, But in the aftermath of the event, Isildur slips into a life-or-death recovery period as he tries to heal from the whole ordeal. He doesn't get better for months on end, but then, hey presto, when the spring arrives, the seedling sprouts, and Isildur suddenly is healed. For real, it says in the Silmarillion that, quote, When its first leaf opened, then Isildur, who had lain long and come near to death, arose and was troubled no more by his wounds. End quote. The text also tells us that Isildur does this heroic deed just in time, as the white tree is cut down shortly afterward. Okay, so after all of this stuff with the white tree goes down, Isildur briefly fades into the background once again. Don't worry though, he'll be back front and center very soon. At this point, Sauron finally convinces the corrupt king to attack the Valar themselves in the Blessed Realm. The nation musters a massive fleet, and they sail off to assault the immortal lands, which is about as bad an idea as it sounds. The entire event ends in catastrophe, like a real, bona fide, apocalyptic catastrophe. The fleet is swallowed up by the water, and then, like, the entire island of Numenor also goes down in ruinous destruction, with the ocean swallowing up the entire country in a single, cataclysmic event. When I've written about this before, I always summarize the downfall of Numenor as an Atlantis-like catastrophe. I mean, it sounds like that, right? The whole thing goes down in the water, boom, gone. But it turns out that this isn't just me putting two and two together. Tolkien himself pointed multiple times to this being his attempt to weave the classic legend into his own story. For instance, in a letter written in 1954, Tolkien says, quote, The particular myth which lies behind this tale, and the mood both of men and elves at this time, is the downfall of Numenor, a special variety of the Atlantis tradition, end quote. 
He mentions the Atlantis connection countless other times, too. See? Atlantis-like catastrophe. Anyway, this naturally impacts Isildur as he's, you know, living on the island that's sinking under the waves. Now, Isildur's family has clearly not been willing to fall in line with the politics of Sauron, and they're not in that fleet that's attacking the Blessed Realm. They stay behind in Numenor. Before that fleet ever sets sail, though, this anti-Sauron's policies stance puts Isildur's family in the camp of a group called the Faithful. They maintain their friendship with elves and their ancient respect of the Valar. They're also opposed by another faction called the King's Men, who support the evil deeds of the rulers of the nation. Now, I say this because when Numenor goes down in flames, or I guess in waves, it's the faithful who step up to save the day. Led by Isildur's father, Elendil, the group prepares to set sail. Elendil has four ships, Isildur has three, and his little brother Anarion has two. As the island sinks below the waves, the little fleet, loaded with as many of the faithful as it can hold, sets sail for the mainland in the middle of a storm. And I don't just mean any storm here. This one makes a hurricane sound like fishing weather. In the Silmarillion, it describes the event by saying, quote, They fled before the black gale out of the twilight of doom into the darkness of the world, and the deeps rose beneath them in towering anger, and waves like unto mountains moving with great caps of riven snow bore them up amid the wreckage of the clouds, and after many days cast them away upon the shores of Middle-earth. End quote. Talk about one crazy ride. The ships of the faithful ride this massive tidal wave on a storm all the way to the mainland, where the water has a tsunami-like impact on the coasts. During the chaos, the ships are understandably scattered, with the father's fleet arriving in the north of the land, and the two sons sticking together and reaching the south in safety. When they arrive, they settle two really important kingdoms. In the north, Dad is welcomed by the local elves before setting up the nearby kingdom of Arnor, This kingdom isn't around by the time of the Lord of the Rings, but its remnants, areas like the Shire, Bree, and Weathertop, can still be seen. Still, when it's first established, Arnor is a strong kingdom, and Elendil officially becomes the High King of all of the Numenorians in Middle-earth. In the south, the two brothers do a bit of a better job setting up a long-term camp. They sail up a river and set up shop in a region that is eventually known by the much more recognizable name of Gondor. Their initial capital is a place called Osgiliath. For you movie watchers only out there, that's the ruined city from the Two Towers and the Return of the King that lies across the plains next to Minas Tirith. The brothers co-rule their new realm in this centrally located city, but just like any royal family, they also set up their own cities where they can rule on their own as the top dog. Anarion rules Minas Tirith, the Tower of the Setting Sun, while Isildur establishes his new home in a place called Minas Ithil, the Tower of the Rising Moon. Once again, the name may not ring a bell, but we've all seen this location in Peter Jackson's films. The thing is, by the time of the Lord of the Rings, that city has been captured by the bad guys and the Black Riders rule it. In fact, it's that glowing greenish city that Frodo, Sam, and Gollum pass on their way to Shelob's lair. Yeah, that hair-raising residence is originally Isildur's personal city stronghold. When that city is first built, it's a beautiful place. In The Two Towers, Faramir describes it by saying, quote, That city was once a strong place, proud and fair, Minas Ithil, the twin city of our own city. End quote. Of course, that city is Minas Tirith, and the two strongholds initially mirror one another on either side, while the capital city lies in between. Now, I also want to point out something else here. 
I used to get stuck on the thought that a few ships arrive in Middle-earth and then suddenly there are all of these massive populated cities and strongholds everywhere. It's like, wait a minute, how big are these ships? How many people do they bring? Enough to nation-build in a matter of months? It just never made sense. But over time I've come to realize a really important fact. A fact that I already mentioned a little bit ago. Remember those colonies that the Numenorians established earlier in their history? Those didn't disappear with the main island. They're still there. In fact, there's even a city right near Isildur's new kingdom that Tolkien takes the time to describe in the Silmarillion, explaining that, quote, In the later days to this haven came only the faithful of Numenor, and many, therefore, of the folk of the coastlands in that region were in whole or in part akin to the elf friends and the people of Elendil, and they welcomed his sons. End quote. All right. So far in Isildur's tale, we've seen a man who defies Sauron's orders, steals a fruit of the white tree, and then fights his way out of the predicament in spite of almost dying. From there, he becomes a major leader of the faithful in direct opposition to the corrupt king and his chief advisor, Sauron. Then, when his home is destroyed and sinks beneath the waves, Isildur becomes second in command to his father, leading the escape and landing in Middle-earth where he sets up the Kingdom of Gondor, which is still around 3,000 years later when Aragorn becomes king. Once he's settled down in his new pad in Minas Ithil, Isildur even replants the sapling, keeping the ancient line of the White Tree of Numenor alive and well. I mean, this guy is just scoring one home run after another. Do you see what I was talking about when we started the series? There's a lot more to see here than a grumpy Gus who takes the one ring and then dies abandoning his men and running away from orcs. And we still haven't even gotten to his magnum opus yet, which also happens to coincide with his greatest mistake. Yeah, this is where we get into some real tragic hero business. See, Isildur's tussle with Sauron isn't done yet. In fact, it's far from over. The Dark Lord goes down with Numenor and his body perishes in the destruction. But that isn't the end of the ethereal being. His bodiless spirit heads back to Middle-earth, following the path of the exiles of Numenor. Once back on the mainland, Sauron flees to his old haunt in Mordor, where he had forged the One Ring several hundred years before. He does this secretly, and for a while, no one knows that he's back in the area. He slowly takes a new shape, but this time we don't get attractive Sauron. Nope, not even a little bit. His new look is described as a form that is terrible, but clothed in power. In The Return of the King, it explains that, quote, his power thereafter was through terror alone, end quote. So, he has a full body again, but it's warped and twisted, like the version we see at the beginning of the Fellowship of the Ring film. This is also the first time that we hear one part of his body in particular singled out in all of its otherworldly horror, his eye. When describing his body rebuild, the Silmarillion states that, quote, the malice of the eye of Sauron, few even of the great among the elves and men could endure. End quote. Sauron takes some well-earned time to gather his strength, and probably pat himself on the back, too. I mean, he single-handedly took down the strongest kingdom in Middle-earth. Kudos to him, right? He may be a tyrannical spirit of evil, but the guy sure does know how to execute a well-planned scheme. But Sauron eventually learns that he wasn't completely successful in destroying the Numenorians. In fact, he didn't even get the main guys that he was targeting. The Return of the King fills us in, stating that, quote, His anger was great when he learned that Elendil, whom he most hated, had escaped him, and was now ordering a realm upon his borders. Therefore, after a time, he made war upon the exiles, before they should take root. End quote. And I'm sorry to say that this is where we'll need to leave things for now, with a grudge-bearing Sauron lurking on the edge of the story, ready to pounce on the unsuspecting Isildur and his family. 
there's just too much of Isildur's story left to cover here, and we'll need at least one more installment to wrap this thing up. Alright, that's it for now. Until next time, friends. This episode is brought to you by, well, me. And despite the fact that I've memorized whole chunks of Tolkien at this point, it still takes quite a bit of work to pull each of these together. There are also some recurring expenses that come with keeping the show on the air. So, if you're interested in helping, I set up a way to toss a few dollars toward covering costs. Just go to buymeacoffee.com slash thehalfling. That's buymeacoffee.com slash thehalfling. If you make a donation, thank you very much. And either way, I hope you'll stick around for all the fun. All right, that's it for now. Until next time, friends.